All of you know that he was with the Abraham Lincoln Association for many years, been closely connected with all the historical activities in Illinois and in the country at large. He's done excellent work in a book on New Salem, that he did a fine work on Theodore Weld, that he's working on a life of Stanton. And of course, none of us will ever forget his incomparable one-volume life of Lincoln. <coughs> At the present time, however, he diverted himself a bit from the Stanton study, which, believe me, takes a great deal of effort, to work on a general and one of the general's observers, Mr. Cadwallader. And the result is three years with Grant, or I think as Cadwallader said, four years with Grant. There seems to be an argument as to whether it was three or four. At any rate, we have the book as the first selection of the Civil War Book Club. And by the way, this evening is the coming out party for the Civil War Book Club. And I don't know, it has struck me all day, completely extraneously, that today is the 150th anniversary of the Battle of Trafalgar and the death of Nelson. Now, I don't know what that's got to do with the Civil War. But <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it has a bit to do with an introduction to Ben Thomas. <laughs> However, I, I really don't feel that I need to say anything more because you all know the Lincoln work, you all know the war work, you all know Ben Thomas. Ben. Thank you, Pete, for that very fine introduction. I was trying to remember this afternoon whether this is my fourth or fifth appearance before the... Chicago Civil War Roundtable, and I'm not sure which it is. But I know this will make at least four times that I've spoken before this group, always with a great deal of pleasure for me. I don't know how much for you, but I do admire your fortitude in coming out again tonight. None of you could fail to know by this time about this book, Three Years with Grant. It's a book that I uh, didn't write. I edited it, and it consists of the reminiscences of a war correspondent who covered Grant's activities from Vicksburg to Appomattox. His name was Sylvanus Cadwallader. Lloyd Lewis was the real discoverer of this hitherto unpublished manuscript, and I'm sure I don't have to tell this audience anything about Lloyd Lewis. You all remember Lloyd and how he started to write a four-volume biography of Grant and died after he had finished the first volume, Captain Sam Grant. After Lloyd's death, his publishers, Little Brown and Company, brought out this little book that some of you may have seen. It's called Letters from Lloyd Lewis. It was published in 1950. I don't think it ever was put on sale, uh, but it was privately distributed. And it was letters that Lloyd wrote to Angus Cameron, who at the present moment is in pretty bad odor, I think, as a suspected communist, but I don't think Lloyd had ever had any suspicions along that line. And as Lloyd carried on the research for this life of Grant, he wrote letters to Cameron telling him what he was finding. And they're extremely interesting. And through one of those letters, you might say that I rediscovered this manuscript. And I'm gonna read you the letter that put me on the trail of it. It's headed the Chicago Sunday Sun, December 15th, 1945. And as I said, it's from Lloyd to Angus Cameron. Have found a highly valuable manuscript by Cadwallader, correspondent of Chicago Times, then the New York Herald, with Grant for four years. Has much new stuff, very vivid and anecdotal, with very full statement in detail of Grant's drinking. One wonderful toot Grant went on while besieging Vicksburg. A boat trip with Cadwallader who idolized him, along as aid, 
Grant roaring drunk. Cadwallader got him in cabin, got his pants and boots off, finally fanned him to sleep, got him sobered up, went out to get some air, found Grant up, dressed, back at bar, drunk again. <laughs> back at landing, he got Grant off, but lost him to a sutler's boat, where he was at it again. Got him on a horse, wild plunging horse, which Grant socked spurs into and ripped through the camp like mad, leaving escort behind, scattering campfires of men, making the privates howl in protest, and rolled away, off into the night, Cadwallader frantic after him, cavalry escort trailing way behind, eventually caught up, took the reins, Grant still objecting loudly as he had all the time. Cadwallader enticed him off horse and got him to lay down while he whistled for the escort, which was scattered over the woods, calling for their lost leader, fearing him brained by a branch. Getting a trooper's ear, he sent for an ambulance and waited by the sleeping general, his knife out, ready to rip off Grant's stars if strange troopers came along, determined to save the general from exposure. Finally, the ambulance came, but Grant wouldn't get in. Oh, no, he'd ride his horse. Cadwallader compromised by getting an ambulance, too, claiming he was tired. And there they sat, Cadwallader holding reins of following horses. When they got to headquarters, Rawlins, the conscience, and the scold was waiting, white-lipped and black-browed. He had sent the ambulance. Damned if Grant didn't rip out, cool and composed, chirp a pleasant good evening, and walk to his tent, steady as a church. <laughs> he caught hell that night, though, from Rawlins, and promised never to do it again. He never mentioned it. But Cadwallader was thereafter given a special tent, bed, or whatever was necessary on the staff. The only newspaper man to be so honored. It's the first known description of a Grant spree. Cadwallader manuscript, I have and can use. Quantities of wonderful stuff in it. Well, you can imagine uh, how reading something like that would affect a historian. I don't know whether uh, Cadwallader or Lloyd described the incident better, but I... Uh, immediately wondered where this precious manuscript could be. Lloyd, of course, had been dead over a year. And so I looked back through the preceding letters in this little book to see where he'd been, where he might have found this thing. And they showed that Lloyd had been at West Point, looking through Grant's record there. Before that, he'd been to Washington, probably at the Library of Congress, to New York at the Newberry Library in Chicago, and in Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois, I thought. Springfield, Illinois, my hometown. Uh, the Illinois State Historical Library. You, you don't suppose that it could be there. Well, early the next morning, I went down to the library, and sure enough, they had it. Filed away in a filing cabinet. Well, I took it out of the cabinet, took it to a desk, and began to read. And I was immediately absorbed with it. It was indeed a historical find. I went back to the library day after day until I'd finished reading it. The original manuscript is almost a thousand pages long, written in longhand, of course, on yellow ruled paper, legal size, which makes quite a chunk of manuscript. Was very legibly written, however, which I was thankful for because when I wrote my biography of Theodore Weld, I never encountered such atrocious handwriting. It almost ruined my eyes, I think, trying to decipher it. And long passages in Cadwallader's manuscript had been marked out as though someone had begun to edit it for publication. But whoever had done that hadn't gone far enough. 
Even with the deletions that had been made, Cadwallader still wandered off too often into the historical byways. He was too often tempted into retelling the whole story of the war. He uh, digressed frequently to give an account of this or that person's post-war career. And instead of stopping at the end of the war, he carried the story on into Andrew Johnson's administration when he was Washington correspondent for the New York Herald. He related some very interesting incidents of uh, the Johnson administration, but they were out of place in a book that uh, really focused on Grant. Cadwallader just didn't know uh, where or how to stop. The book sort of trailed off aimlessly. What it needed was a, was a relentless pruning that would keep it essentially an eyewitness account. And that was my first job as an editor. I eliminated practically everything in the manuscript that concerned the post-Civil War period and quite a bit of obviously uh, unnecessary material in the war period. Altogether, I guess I took out about a third of what was in the original manuscript. Well, then, of course, as any editor has to do, I had to verify Cadwallader's statements and see if he was if he had his history straight. And many of the persons that he mentioned had to be more fully identified to make the book uh, understandable to the ordinary reader. <clears throat> and some of those pesky identifications gave me a lot of trouble. You wouldn't think that it would be difficult to find out the first name of Ananias Warden, who was one of the co-owners of the Chicago Times in that period. But I had a lot of trouble with that name. And then one day I happened to be out at the Chicago Historical Society and told Paul Engel of my difficulties and enlisted his help. So while Paul and I had a cup of coffee, Margaret Scriven turned up the man's first name in no time at all, showing that these things are very simple if you only know where to look. There was one uh, character I came across that I never could identify, neither could Pete Long. I want to thank Pete publicly, as I have privately already and in the book, for the help he gave me. I called on Pete for assistance, and he gave me very wonderful assistance. But even Pete couldn't locate a certain General Peary, P-I-R-I-E, and I couldn't either. And you'll find his name in the book with no further identification. If any of you ever happen to stumble onto him, I'd like to know who he was. Great many people helped me with the book, and I've acknowledged that help, of course, in the introduction. I even put my older daughter to work on it. She can draw pretty well, so I got her to make some of the rough sketches from which the maps were later prepared. Of course, I had to pay her. <laughs> well, an important part of my job as editor was to learn the details of Cadwallader's life and also what he looked like. His own statements in the manuscript showed that he attended school in Ross County, Ohio, which is the county where Chillicothe is. And then he began his newspaper career as editor of a small paper in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And when the Civil War broke out, he and his brother-in-law, Edward A. Paul, were the owners and were operating the Milwaukee Daily News. Well, during the war, Cadwallader started out as a correspondent for the Chicago Times. I don't think the Times of that day has any connection with the present Sun-Times. I'm not certain about that. The Times building is at Madison and, uh, and Dearborn. The old Times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he started with the Times, and later in the war, he transferred over to the New York Herald. After the war, he lived in Washington for a while as, the, as head of the Herald's Washington News Bureau. He lived with General Rawlins, Grant's chief of staff, 
in Georgetown until later he brought his family to Washington and set up his own housekeeping establishment. Then he returned to Milwaukee, where he again engaged in newspaper work. He claimed to have served in, as an assistant secretary of state in Madison from 1874 to 1878, supervising the working force, which had charge of insurance, the land office, and the auditor's accounts. Then he moved to Springfield, Missouri, then on to San Diego, California. And a short preface that he wrote for his manuscript, which I did not include in the book, stated that he wrote it at Fall River Mills, California, and finished it in 1896. I'd never heard of Fall River Mills, but by consulting an atlas, I found out that it's up in the north, sort of the northeastern part of California, apparently in a very sparsely settled area up there. Well, I wondered how old Cadwallader was when he finished the manuscript and whether he died in Fall River Mills. And I didn't know yet where he was born, as a matter of fact. Well, I got copies of the 1860 and 1870 census returns from the Milwaukee Historical Society, and the 1860 return gave this information. This is from the Kenosha return. S. Cadwallader, age 34, editor and publisher. Place of birth, no entry. I still didn't know where he was born. Mary J. Cadwallader, 26, born in Vermont. That was his wife. She was eight years younger than he. Carrie Cadwallader, age five, born in Ohio. Harriet A. Paul, 28, that was his sister-in-law, born in Vermont. And they had a servant, Carolyn T. Zoff, 15. No entry as to her place of birth. The 1870 census return gave me a little more information. By that time, he had moved back to Milwaukee. Sylvanus Cadwallader, age 44, printer and publisher, place of birth, Ohio. I still don't know where in Ohio. And uh, his daughter, Carrie, who would have been 15 at that time, has dropped out of the list of persons in the household. As rather young for a girl to get married, perhaps she died. But he had two other children, born since 1860. Rawlins, named after General Rawlins, of course, aged four, born in Washington, D.C., and Ethel, aged two, born in Wisconsin. So, had a little more information about him. He was 70 years old, apparently, at the time he finished the manuscript. Well, I next wrote to the county clerk at Shasta County, California, to find out whether he died there. I thought the records of the vital statistics might show something about him, or perhaps the probate records. Maybe there was a will on file there. And I got back a little more information from the county clerk out there, who is a lady. This is from the index to the voting registrations on June 1st, 1896. Name Sylvanus Cadwallader, age 70, height 5 feet 7 and a half inches, complexion medium, color of hair gray, color of eyes hazel, country of nativity, Ohio, occupation journalist, precinct Fall River Mills. And at the bottom, the clerk added this information. We also checked the probate records and the record of deaths for the county and found no further information so feel that he probably did not die in Shasta County. Well, that's the end of the trail. I don't know what finally happened to Mr. Cadwallader. I couldn't find a photograph of him, but I found a very interesting description in a book that some of you may be familiar with, Frank B. Wilkie's Pen and Powder. Wilkie was one of the leading correspondents during the Civil War for the New York Times. And he has this to say. Among other new faces that I saw among the correspondents who had gathered to assist in opening the river, this is during the Vicksburg campaign, was a slender man with dark, mysterious eyes, a swarthy complexion, and a face somewhat wrinkled, who moved incessantly about in a nervous, uneasy manner. 
He wore a round-top cap of some kind of, of some kind of skin with the hair on and was altogether in dress and style calculated to attract attention. I imagine he would be with that cap. I learned in time that his name was Cadwallader and that he represented the Chicago Times. He was distant, reticent, not at all disposed to be companionable with the other newspaper men or anybody else. Some of us in our superabundant loyalty were disposed to fancy that he was somewhat ashamed of his newspaper, which then had a frightful reputation among ultra-loyalists who never read it of being a copperhead sheet. It was thought that the slender Cadwallader, dodging furtively here and there, might be under the apprehension that his professional connection was of a character which was calculated to make him unpopular. Then he goes on to comment on Cadwallader's ability as a newspaper man. The slim gentleman with the swarthy and care-wrinkled face, the skin cap, the furtive manner of dodging through the camp, and the representative of a, of a malignant copperhead newspaper, in time led all the correspondents in his facilities for obtaining news, entirely irrespective of their energy or the loyalty of the journals with which they were connected. How this came about is very interesting and has never yet been told in print. In fact, the secret was known to few during the war and without this publication might forever remain a profound secret. Well, then Wilkie goes on to tell how Cadwallader gained favor at Army headquarters by taking care of a high officer, he calls him, a high officer who had gone on a tremendous binge. He says, I will not give the name of the high officer, but will only say that he was one in whom General Grant had a wonderful personal interest. <laughs> Well, then Wilkie adds, Mr. Cadwallader was an excellent correspondent, but he went much higher in the confidence of the commander-in-chief than he would had his dependence for promotion been based on his letters to the newspapers. He was untiring in his pursuit of news. He was not diverted in his search by fatigue, danger, or any other obstacle. He followed Grant through all his career, and during the campaigns in the East, he was the chief of the New York Herald staff of Army correspondents, a position he filled with surpassing ability. So I guess Cadwallader knew what he was talking about. I thought he was boasting, though, at first, when he told of the special privileges he enjoyed at Grant's headquarters. He claimed that a pass from Grant took him anywhere he wanted to go, day or night, anytime, when the, other, when the activities of the other correspondents were restricted. He said that quartermasters were instructed to provide him with transportation, that he could draw subsistence from the commissaries, and that he was even permitted to send out news dispatches in Grant's <coughs> private mail pouch. He claimed that his tent was always pitched near Grant's, that he messed with the officers of Grant's staff and used staff horses whenever he needed them. And he wasn't boasting. Wilkie, as I just read you, tells about the spe special privileges he enjoyed and what a mystery it was to the other correspondents as to how he could get these personal favors. And Colonel Theodore Lyman of Meade's staff also verified Cadwallader's claims. Contrasting Meade's press, uh, press relations with those of Grant Colonel Lyman wrote, the plain truth is that Meade, as a rule, will not even speak to any person connected with the press. They do not dare to address him. With other generals, how different. At Grant's headquarters, there is a fellow named Cadwallader, and you see the Lieutenant General Staff Officers calling, oh, Cad, come here a minute. Well, as I said, I excluded from the book, for the sake of unity, practically all of the post-war happenings that Cadwallader tells about, but some of them are extremely interesting. There's one very nice tidbit here that I think I'll read to you because you won't be able to read it in the book. Thursday, May 10th, the grand jury of the United States Court in session at Norfolk, Virginia, 
indicted Jeff Davis for treason and adjourned till the 5th of June to meet in Richmond. In anticipation of this indictment, I had used all means at my command to secure an early copy of the findings of the jury for publication. At this time, Cadwallader was uh, head of the Herald's Washington News Bureau. Mr. William H. Steiner, Herald correspondent at Fortress Monroe, was instructed to subordinate everything else to getting a copy of it. Two special correspondents were sent from Washington to Norfolk by me for that purpose, and each of these three men was impressed with its importance. Their first attempts were to obtain a copy of the indictment before it was read in open court. All persuasions and negotiations with Judge John Curtis Underwood and Prosecutor L.A. Chandler failed. Relying upon the usual publicity given to court records, they apprehended no difficulty in obtaining a copy whenever it should be presented in open court and omitted the precaution of having it taken down by a shorthand reporter verbatim as read. When the reading of the indictment was finished, Judge Underwood immediately put the document in his pocket, said he would direct the clerk to record it at the proper time, and adjourned court, all of which was promptly telegraphed me, with the additional information that the judge had departed for his home in Alexandria, Virginia, taking the indictment with him. I dispatched a trusted man, an old acquaintance of Underwood's, to Alexandria to meet him on the boat, go with him to his home, and get a copy of the indictment at all hazards and without regard to its cost. This man telegraphed me that every appliance had failed, that Underwood was immovable, that nothing could be done further. On returning to my office on 14th Street, opposite Willard's Hotel, in the afternoon, the janitor informed me that a gentleman had just been in inquiring for me, who refused to give his name or state his business. He described him as a small, quiet, subdued-looking man, indifferently dressed, who had promised to call again within an hour. Within the time named, the visitor returned, inquired if I was chief of the New York Herald Bureau, and said he wished to have some private conversation with me. As this was a matter of daily occurrence, it gave me no surprise. Taking him into my back office and carefully closing the door, I was ready for business. He said, I am Judge Underwood. I know you are anxious to secure a copy of the Jeff, Jeff Davis indictment, and slowly drawing it from his pocket, here is the original paper, and there is no copy of it in existence. I naturally expressed my surprise and gratification and explained the trouble and expense I had incurred to get a copy. I also informed him of the Herald's anxiety in the matter and that I was willing to pay handsomely for the privilege of transcribing a copy. He said he would accept no money consideration for that privilege, but that I could have it on a single condition. He had been mixed up in the confiscation and sale of abandoned lands, abandoned as in quotes. He had been mixed up in the confiscation and sale of abandoned lands and public property around Norfolk and Portsmouth. And there seemed to be a newspaper determination and some in official quarters to attack and traduce him officially. The price of the indictment was the silence of the Herald. I assured him of my authority to act for the paper to the extent of not inaugurating a hue and cry against him and immediately wrote off and telegraphed the following copy of the indictment. Just a historical sideline, but I think a rather interesting one. Before long, many of you will be reading a splendid Civil War novel, McKinley, Cantor, uh, McKinley Cantor's Andersonville, the story of the Confederate prison camp. And in there, you'll become better acquainted, perhaps, with Henry Wirtz, who was commandant of the stockade. And I think you'd be rather interested in this, which is also from the part of the manuscript which I did not print. Wednesday afternoon, November 8th, I called on the Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, of course, and handed him a written request to be permitted to visit Wirtz in prison to obtain such information as he chose to communicate for publication in the Herald. This request was a great surprise to Mr. Stanton and was promptly refused. 
He pronounced it absurd, said I could have no business with a prisoner which would justify it, and so forth. When pressed further, he said if this privilege was accorded to me, it would have to be given also to scores of others as soon as they heard of it. To this I replied by pointing to the clock and saying that I knew his habits well, that in less than 10 minutes he would leave his office and all official business for that day, that I purposely timed my coming so as to prevent any similar applications until they would be too late, and there was not a valid reason on earth why I should not see words. His next pretext was that he could not allow me to see the prisoner alone in any case. My answer was that I didn't want to see him alone, had never expected to. As he commenced his preparations for leaving, he remarked that if Colonel Chalfin of the War Department would go with me, I could have the necessary passes. Before these could be written, I had Chalfin in the room. Mr. Stanton handed me the passes and bowed himself out precisely at four o'clock. I hadn't known that Stanton was a clock watcher up to that time. My arrangements were soon made with Colonel Chalfin. He was to go directly home, get an early dinner, say nothing to anyone about the proposed visit, and wait at his house till I called for him. Soon after dark, I took Mr. Aaron Johns, an accomplished shorthand writer, with me in a closed carriage, picked up Colonel Chalfin at his residence without attracting attention, drove to the old Capitol prison, presented my passes to Major Russell, who had Wirtz in his charge, and was by him introduced to the prisoner. Wirtz was confined in room number nine on the third floor, strongly guarded day and night. The only door to the room opened into a hall through which an armed sentinel paced continually. One or more commissioned officers were always present. The room was about 15 feet square, with two barred windows looking out northward on A Street North. The furniture consisted of an army cot and blankets, a small wooden table, two or three dilapidated chairs, one or two small vessels, and a tin candlestick. My interview was reported verbatim in the Herald October 9th. I promised Wirtz to give him the benefit of any statements he chose to make, and the notes were read to him and received his approval before I left. Henry Wirtz died as he had lived during his imprisonment with apparent composure and protesting his innocence to the last. The last day of his life was spent in writing a diary of his prison experiences, and his manuscript betrayed no tremulousness of hand nor mental disturbance. He took stimulants freely through the day, but not to the point of the slightest intoxication, and only finished his writing on the morning of his execution. So perfectly self-possessed had he been that he left nothing undone. The few books he had of his own were put up in packages addressed to his children, whilst those which he borrowed from others were promptly assorted, tied up, and left to be delivered to the owners. He appeared on the scaffold with whiskers closely cropped, lips apart, teeth black from the use of tobacco, eyes sunken, forehead retreating and topped with disheveled hair, lean and colorless face, and showing no sign of repentance or remorse for his complicity with the historic horrors which have made the Andersonville stockade a synonym for everything cruel and terrible on earth. He was undoubtedly the cruel, unfeeling tool of greater villains and monsters than himself, some of whom should have shared his fate. It seems a travesty of justice to hang such a man as Wirtz and allow everyone else to escape. Of course, as you know, Wirtz was the only Confederate officer who was executed after the war. The following extracts taken from the notes of my interview with Wirtz may not be without interest. I am a native of Switzerland, was born November 25, 1823. My people were Catholics. I came to New York in 1849 enlisted as a private in a company of Confederate infantry called the Madison Guards, commanded by Captain Waddell near Milliken's Bend, Louisiana, was detailed for prison duty in August 1861, was AAG to General Johnston at the Battle of Fair Oaks, was ordered to Andersonville in August, did not like the way prisoners were treated, asked to be relieved but request not granted, remained at Andersonville till the Confederacy bursted in 1865. <clears throat> For these things down at Andersonville, somebody must suffer. The prisoners did not have enough to eat. I have never denied that they were mistreated, 
but it was not my fault. If I am the last one that is to suffer death for the Southern Confederacy, I am satisfied. I do not fear death. I never saw a man shot and never shot one myself. That, I will say, as long as I can say it. I never hunted prisoners with dogs nor anything of that kind. I have no complaints to make against the persons who have taken care of me here in prison. Nor do I have any ill will against any member of the court or the judge advocate. Anybody who knows anything of military matters knows that one in command of 35,000 men has to be strict. But when I am accused of conspiring with Jeff Davis and others, it is all a lie. His manner of speaking was composed throughout. His statements were made in a remarkably direct manner considering the surrounding circumstances. And none but a few of the least importance were drawn out by any direct questions. Cadwallader led me down one extremely interesting bypath. He commented on the fact that Grant, in his memoirs, stated that General Rawlins disapproved of Sherman's plan to march from Atlanta to the sea. Cadwalder says that that isn't so. Furthermore, he says that Grant knew it wasn't so. Rawlins never disapproved of Sherman's plan, and that he would not believe that Grant wrote such a thing unless he saw it in Grant's own handwriting. He inferred pretty strongly that someone had tampered with Grant's memoirs. Well, I thought I'd like to find out whether this was so or not. And the next time I was in Washington, I went to the Library of Congress and took a look at the original manuscript of Grant's memoirs, which is in the Manuscripts Division at the Library of Congress. And I couldn't find any such statement attributed or about Rawlins. But it was extremely interesting to see the original copy of Grant's memoirs. It tells a story. When you approach the end of the memoirs, you can tell that Grant was running a race with death. The memoirs become disjointed, discontinuous. The language is lucid. Grant knew what he was writing. But uh, apparently he put down whatever happened to come into his head. He was anxious to get these things down on paper, and he didn't bother to put them in the form in which they would eventually be published. And someone had had something to do with Grant's memoirs before they were published. Well, as Pete Long pointed out in his fine edition of Grant's memoirs, Adam Badeau claimed after Grant's death that he had written the memoirs and wanted $10,000 from the Grant family. Well, he didn't write the memoirs. That is not true, of course. Grant wrote them, but evidently Badeau did do considerable editing on the <coughs> last part of the memoirs to make them suitable for publication. And that's substantiated by the fact that I think Grant's family did pay him $10,000. Isn't that right, Pete? Well, Three Years with Grant is a, is a great book. I can say that in, in all modesty because I didn't write it. I only edited it. I believe it's the most candid portrait of Grant that's ever been presented. It's certainly the final word on Grant and liquor, but it's more than that. Bruce Catton calls it U.S. Grant with a bark on. Grant isn't prettied up. It's Grant as a general and Grant as a person, but it's not the debunking type of book at all. It's a frank book, but Grant doesn't suffer. Cadwallader was a great admirer of Grant, and Grant towers, bark and all. Cadwallader also gives some very revealing pen portraits and appraisals of other generals, and he gives Grant's opinions of other generals. He says that Grant rated Sheridan more highly than Sherman, thought he was a better balanced individual than Sherman, would trust him farther under stress than he would Sherman. Of course, maybe we better make a little allowance for that because, you know, Sherman was in pretty bad odor with all the war correspondents because he was pretty rough with them. So uh, perhaps Cadwallader's judgment should be discounted a little on that score. He thinks that Meade was the least appreciated of all the Union generals. He rates Meade pretty highly, in spite of the fact that Meade had his troubles with war correspondence, too. <laughs> and, of course, the book gives a splendid account of the trials, the tribulations, the accomplishments 
of the war correspondence. I'm not going to tell you too much about what's in the book. Some of you may have already seen the excerpts from it in American Heritage, and you can read the book for yourselves. I'll uh, try to whet your appetites, frankly, but uh, not dull them. But I will read one excerpt from the book. I think it's one of the highlights. From the first, Cadwallader had liked Grant personally. And after Vicksburg and Chattanooga, he was convinced that Grant was a great general. But then came the Battle of the Wilderness, and the slaughter was terrific. The Army of the Potomac took a terrible beating, at least a battering, perhaps not a beating. And Cadwallader began to doubt. Night fell, and everyone else at headquarters, apparently, had gone to bed. Cadwallader couldn't sleep. He was worried. If things ran true to form, the offensive was over. The Army of the Potomac had fought a battle, taken a severe battering, and he half suspected that next day the order to retreat would be given as it had been before. But we'll let him tell it. I sat down by a smoldering fire in front of Grant's tent and found myself distressingly wide awake. Unpleasant thoughts ran riot through my mind. We had waged two days of murderous battle and had but little to show for it. Judged by comparative losses, it had been, a disaster, it had been disastrous to the Union cause. We had been compelled by General Lee to fight him on a field of his own choosing with the certainty of losing at least two men to his one until he could be dislodged and driven from his vantage ground. We had scarcely gained a rod of the battlefield at the close of a two days contest. And now had come the crowning stroke of rebel audacity in furiously storming the center of our line and, in, and achieving temporary success. For minutes that seemed hours, for the first and only time during my intimate and confidential relations with General Grant, I began to question the grounds of my faith in him so long entertained and so unqualifiedly expressed. Could it be possible that I had followed General Grant through the Tallahatchie expedition, the operations against Vicksburg, the campaign at Chattanooga, and finally to the dark and tangled thickets of the wilderness to record his defeat and overthrow, as had been recorded of every commander of the Army of the Potomac? But my faith in the man rose superior to all these calamitous surroundings, and I still believed in his transcendent military genius, despite this momentary weakness of fear and unbelief. About the time I had arrived at this comforting conclusion, I happened to look obliquely to the right, and there sat General Grant in an army chair on the other side of the slowly dying embers. His hat was drawn down over his face. The high collar of his old blue army overcoat turned up above his ears. One leg crossed over the other knee, eyes on the ashes in front, causing me to think him half asleep. My gloomy thoughts of but a few minutes were instantly chased away by my study of the figure before me. His nervous changing of one leg over the other showed he was not asleep. His whole attitude showed him to be in a brown study. In a short time, however, he straightened up in the chair and finding that I was not asleep, commenced a pleasant, chatty conversation upon indifferent subjects. Neither of us alluded to what was uppermost in our mind for more than, for more than a half hour. I then remarked that if we were to get any sleep that night, it was time we were in our tents and that it was a duty in his case to get all the rest he could. He smilingly assented, spoke of the sharp work General Lee had been giving us for a couple of days, and entered his tent. It was the grandest mental sunburst of my life. I had suddenly emerged from the slew of despond to the solid bedrock of unwavering faith. Good to be with you. Thank you.